Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. Good afternoon, St. Louis. A beautiful Monday. Is it spring yet? Is it spring yet? It's not quite spring, but it feels very nicely with the sun. It was chilly this morning. Sue Thomas, how are you? I am well, thank you. I love the sunshine. And for the first time, I'm going to introduce him this way every single afternoon. The Hall of Famer, Fred Bottomer, is here. No, I mean, I told Joe Buck this the other night. When you were inducted, that I am now obligated the same way he introduces Troy Aikman every time. And I told Joe, like, somebody took the time. It's like 26 minutes on YouTube to loop together every (laughs) intro that he's done over the years on Fox for uh, NFL football and um, and Troy Aikman. But I'm going to do the same thing. Fred, how are you? I'm good. Did Did he know that? He didn't. He said his comment was, we both agreed. Can you imagine if someone that did that would spend time on something maybe positive, how much they could achieve in life? But he was unaware. But it was a nice ceremony. Sue and I talked about it on Friday. Jane was here, and we uh, we certainly missed you. Your speech clocked in at 7 minutes and 30 seconds, though, Fred. What That's happened good. there? I, I ad-libbed a couple stories. Yeah, it was I noticed great. a couple other people were going a little longer, so I figured I could take the time. The the, the longest one Mark found was 8.30. So I you think it averaged out. Yeah. I think it, oh, okay. Some people did keep it to about three and a half, four minutes, and then a couple were longer. But Joe Bucks was really good. Oh, it was. He was great. Yeah. He really was. He was a... Uh, Kind of emotional there at the end, and he brought up you, Fred, which I love. <laughs> yeah, he did. So he's in my good book forever. Well, I apologize. I snuck out before Joe's uh, speech. I was pissed off that Fred did not address the diversity, equity, and inclusion issue like some of the other people that were up there on Thursday night. So as a small sign of protest, I walked out of the St. Louis Media uh-huh. History um, Awards. No, I looked for my opportunity, and I just kind of took it, so I apologize. The rest of the table is kind of left there. I, I didn't eat enough hearty appetizers. I should have eaten more. I didn't eat I any. I didn't try any because I was talking to people. Were you too nervous? Yeah. yeah. You didn't see. I asked him this before the speech. I said, because uh, I've made this clear. I do not like like doing speeches. You want me no. to MC and I, I can do that. But if you just put me up there and I have to do a speech. No, that's not my thing. And I asked Fred, are you nervous? And he said, yeah, but you didn't come off as nervous. No, you so. didn't, well, Fred. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. You, you, you did a really, really good job. I'd be really up there. I'd be job. like, you'd be able to hear me swallow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't like doing Gee, that, that stuff at all. that sounds great. I know. That's why you don't ever want to invite me to do a speech. Okay. <laughs> good to know. I can moderate. I can do a few things like that. Give me a script. I'm fine. Well, Fred, we did have a good time, and you deserved well, all thank the you. accolades. Thank and you very much. I know your much. kids were in town, and yeah, they had a good time great. as well. So we're kind of off and running. We got loaded up day today with a bunch of different guests and things that I did not touch on on Friday that I want to get into. And I guess really the the big thing today is the border bill, which um, 
I don't really understand a lot of this. We're going to go back and forth. We're going to figure out where we are, and Bill Malusian's going to tell us one thing, and then Mike Johnson's going to say one thing, and then members of the Senate are going to say something else, and it's really kind of hard to loop it all together. But here's, here's my impression at this point is, well, first of all, it might not even matter what's in the bill from the Senate because they don't like it at all, and it's been declared by the Speaker, Mike Johnson, as DOA, in the House. But I, I thought this was good. And Fred, I know how busy he is. It would still be great to get Bill Malusian on the show. We always make these requests and he is yeah. in high demand. But he's the one guy out there, and I don't see anybody else that's reporting exceptionally well on all issues related to the border, whether it's what is happening at the border itself or what's happening in Washington. So here, here's his takeaway from the border deal. And some of this, by the way, I think is a little um opposite of what's been reported in some of the media. So he says, no amnesty legalization of anyone already in the U.S. illegally in this bill. This is the Senate bill, okay? Uh, Funds an increase in ICE detention capacity to approximately 50,000 from the current 34,000. So this is where it gets a little tricky here, and I want to explain this to people. And I'm not saying that um, this makes this aspect of the bill more appealing, but I do think there's nuance, and I'm one that always appreciates nuance. I also appreciate the fact that this stuff gets mangled and misinterpreted, and most people, even if they're members of the House or the Senate who vote on this, they don't know all the particulars. So what Bill is reporting is that there's a seven-day rolling average of 5,000 encounters per day or 85 encounters in a single day. DHS is required to shut the border down and turn around I'm sorry, turn away anyone who crosses. If you get to that number of 5,000 encounters per day or 8,500 counters in a single day. So the, the first is a rolling average of five. Now, what he says is, that sound, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like, well, wait, if, if we have 5,000 people that are streaming across the border on average in a seven-day period, or if it gets up to 8,500 encounters in a single day, the DHS is required to shut down the border and turn away anyone who crosses. So to most people, that seems like a very high number, right? 5,000 a day. We played Jay Johnson, who was in the Obama administration last week. He said, look, I thought 1,000 a day was a lot. So that's one reason I think uh, Republicans are throwing the red flag on this. Now, I, I said it was nuanced, right? So this is what Bill says. You tell me if this makes any difference. He says, this does not mean 5,000 are allowed in before this authority kicks in. Single adults would be detained. Families would be released via ATD. That stands for Alternatives to Detention. Asylum cases would be fast-tracked to months rather than years because, let's face it, if you've heard about some of the people that are coming across the border, they're detained, they're given their court date. The court date sometimes, this is crazy, it's like 2032 or something, right? Exactly. Uh, He says those who fail would be quickly removed from the U.S. Those who initially pass would be released with work authorization and 90-day supervision. The shutdown authority doesn't drop until crossings decrease significantly in the days following the shutdown. He, uh, he cites tougher asylum requirements, which you absolutely have to have those, a higher credible fear standard, including three bars to eligibility. Criminal history, could they have resettled in another country on the way to the U.S.? Could they have resettled somewhere else in their own country? Just saying that you're scared to return home will no longer be enough in the initial interview. Now, that sounds like something that's significant, because yeah. I think what's happening here is you have people that are abusing the asylum process. Now, I'm going to tell you that, but I'm also going to tell you this is something else that I discovered today. And and again, in big federal pieces of legislation, 
there is a lot of stuff that jumps out at you, and you don't know if this stuff is accurate or not. So let me kind of um, focus on the 5,000 number. The 5,000 number, this is something that's reported by Congressman Dan Bishop. And again, it's a little confusing. The 5,000 only count, this makes no sense to me, but I want to tell you what it says. If they are Canadians or Mexicans breaching our border. So according to Dan Bishop and some of the others in there, by the way, they're citing the actual language of the bill. Everyone else, if you're from Honduras, if you're from another country. Venezuela? Yeah, it doesn't matter. That Then that actually doesn't add to the total. So everyone else and their mothers can keep pouring in until there are 5,000 total Mexicans on a given day. So that seems weird, right? I, I don't even know how that would yeah. be true. So if you just kind of do the math here, you have, let's say you have 10,000 people that are coming across the border on a given day. Let's just use that figure. 3,000 of them are from, um, you know— Honduras, 2,000 of them are from Venezuela, 1,000 of them are from, you know, pick Guatemala. I have no idea. But then 4,000 are from Mexican, how they keep any um, semblance of track of this, I have no idea. Well, then that doesn't matter because they have to get to 5,000 Mexicans in order for them to shut down the border. None of that makes sense. And and I think what this goes to is the issue of, um, you, you know, language in federal legislation is just very confusing. So what does it exactly mean? So here's something else. I, I don't even know how this is possible, Sue. I'm going to toss it out there. Okay. And this is something that I – because I think we all agree that the, the border is a, is a big problem and we, we need to address it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they're doing this with Ukraine funding and with funding for Israel, which I think is messed up. I mean, my recommendation – now, I'm not a, a lawmaker and I don't play one on – the radio or TV. How about a standalone bill when it comes to Ukraine, standalone yeah. bill when it comes to Israel? Let's pass that legislation, see where people are, get them on the record. You want to deal with this border bill? Let's have a standalone bill because you jumble all these things up, and that's the game that they play in Washington. All right, along those lines, you tell me if this is problematic. I tend to think it is. This is another tweet from Mr. Malusian today. Interesting context. The $60 billion in Ukraine assistance in the Senate deal is larger than the entire budget that the United States Marine Corps requested for fiscal year 24, which was $53 billion. How, how is that American in any way, shape, or form? So in other words, we're, they're requesting $53 billion for the entire Marine Corps for the one year, right? And we're going to send $60 billion just this time, we've sent billions and billions. We're going to send 60 more to Ukraine. That makes a, no sense. But to me. this is what they do. This is why people get driven crazy. And by the way, this is what helps President Donald Trump because it is. this type of insanity. Now, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm an expert on foreign policy. I'm not necessarily an isolationist. But I do think that when you're kind of looking at these things and you weigh the pros and the cons and you tell the American people, the working class people in particular, who are so fed up with the nonsense that happens in Washington, just throw that out there, Adam. Let's put that in an ad, okay? Let's say let's say you want to make an impression upon the American people and you put that little uh, bit of information. I'm going to assume that it's true. It's from Mr. Malusian. He's usually pretty buttoned up on this. $60 billion compared to $53 billion for the entire U.S. Marine Corps. That That's insane, to me. Um, and I don't think it should be acceptable. So right now it's not going to be acceptable because you have a border deal that's going to be stopped in the House. I don't know where this is ever going to meet any kind of um, 
you know, semblance of agreement because both sides are so far apart. By the way, the governor, Mike Parson, was just down there on the border. One thing I realized uh, as I went down there firsthand and seen this on the behalf of all Missourians, how critical a junction we are in this country. I think there's no question whatsoever that the border has to be secured. And I do believe at this point that the president and what's going on in Washington, D.C. is not going to be able to help secure the border at so this point. along those lines, sorry, Governor, I kind of stepped on the uh, the second half of that. Keep in mind, Governor Parson was one that was a little late to the game about 10 days ago when the Red State Rebellion was going on out there with many states pledging to Texas and Governor Abbott for you know, assistance. So the governor now says, well, he, he's OK with Missouri troops to be used down there in Texas to secure the border. We will start the process of working with the Operation Lone Star to be able to put boots on the ground and be able to help even more than what we already have. We currently have National Guard members in Texas, but we are currently going to do more to help Operation Lone Star. Trump was with Maria Bartiromo talking about the border. I mean, there there is you know, I don't know if they ever really do polling down to this particular question, but you could take everything else out of it. Well, they they do ask this question, and I even saw some of the NBC polling today. We're going to go over that a little bit because it is abysmal for this White House and this administration. But it's, it's, again, I've said this multiple times, it's overwhelming how many people think that the border is effed up. And if they're posed with the question, who's going to handle the border better, Trump or Biden? Not even close. It's always going to be Trump, right? Mr. President, when will you announce who your VP is? Oh, that's the wrong bite. I put the one on the uh, VP. Hang on. It's not sustainable. And now you look, look, these countries are very smart. I know every one of the leaders of the countries, for the most part, uh, the presidents, the dictators. I know them all. I know the kings, the queens. I know them all. These are smart people. These are streetwise people. It makes sense that they're taking people out and sending them up in caravans to the United States. And it's not just South America. It's from Africa, from Asia, from all over and the China, world. Asia. Yeah. I mean, from all over the world, from China, they had 28,000 people in the last few months. 28,000, that's, what's he doing, building an army? And they were mostly men, almost all men, from the age of 18 to 25. So what's that all about? You know, I, I just envision people who are not paying attention, the low-information voters. They hear President Trump say something like that. They probably think he's just making it up. I've said this before. Oh, when you yeah. talk about Chinese nationals or people from Africa, we've seen visual evidence. It's not something that's made up uh, in any way, shape, or form, and it's rather stunning. So we'll cover the border a little bit more here this afternoon. I did like... Um, the reporting by Bill Malusian. By the way, I'm going to get into some of this stuff with um, President Biden in the presidential race of the polling. But since I started that soundbite on the vice presidential picks, let's see what the president had to say, the former president. Who's he going to pick? Mr. President, when will you announce who your VP is? Not for a while. I mean, I have, we have so many great people in the Republican Party, but not for a while. So people. you haven't decided who it is? I have a lot of good ideas, but I haven't. And there's no reason so to do that So you haven't told that person you're my person? I, I speak to everybody. I speak to everybody. You know, I called Tim Scott this so because a lot of people like Tim Scott. I called him and I said, you're a much better candidate that, for me than you are for yourself. So uh, maybe it's Tim Scott. Well, it could be, it could be a lot of people. Uh, Christy Noem has been incredible fighting for me. She said I'd never run against him because I can't beat him. That was a very nice thing to say. What was it's the story that your team reached out to RFK Jr.? Did it's you? a false story, no. It's a false you story. You never reached you know out what? to RFK Jr.? I like Jr.? him a lot. Nope, never. 
never happened. Yeah, that seems a little weird that he would be the uh, the vice presidential thought. Although the polling for RFK Jr. continues to hold uh-huh. kind of strong in the independent area, where there are more people, I think, on both sides worried about how it would affect their main candidates. So uh, we're off and running here on a Monday afternoon. This will be an interesting conversation coming up. I found a piece that was in Real Clear Politics last week about young voters, the dissatisfaction of young voters. You know what they call the uh, Generation Z people? They call them Zoomers. Did you know that? Zoomers? Yeah, not no. Boomers, but uh, Zoomers. I learned that so because Adeline uh, Von Draley wrote about it. She is a senior at the University of Missouri studying American history. So I read this piece the other day. I thought it was interesting. And then at the end it said, oh, the author is from Mizzou. So, so of course she's the Hall of Famer reached great. out and she's coming on here this afternoon. One of the topics that I did not get to on Friday that I think is really important, and it kind of plays into some of the themes here, certainly in St. Louis, with Jamie Reed, our whistleblower at WashU, which uh, that story goes back a year. The New York Times had another opinion piece, I think it was on Thursday, it was either Thursday or Friday, that was very, very turf-related. It sounded like Dave Chappelle and J.K. Rowling. I mean, it was pushing back against some of this trans nonsense. So I'm going to cover that here this afternoon. Jason Rand's going to be back with us in the 4 o'clock hour. Jason, of course, he's a regular on Fox. He's a talk show host in his own right at KTTH in Seattle. And he uncovered this amazing um, assembly, or I don't know if it was uh, part of something broader, but they were doing an assembly at this high school in Shoreline, Washington, to basically pay uh, homage to Fidel Castro as a social justice champion. And Jason's all over that, so we'll get to that. Cusimano's going to have some thoughts on sports this afternoon. Dr. Mike Siegel is here. Bob Onder, who's running for the third congressional seat being vacated by Blaine Lukemeyer, is going to drop by in studio this afternoon. Plus, we have Sue's News and the Hall of Famer back with us. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. So I'm just going to be honest with you, got into a bit of an Eddie Money Ooh, I'm over the weekend. This. Loving I know. it. This is, I couldn't believe I didn't have this one in as a bump, but oh, we fixed that here this afternoon on 97.1 FM Talk as I try desperately to talk up to the intro here. At 329, <laughs> here's Eddie Money. I still got it, Sue. I still got it. That is a damn yes, good song. And I miss him. You know, he died several years ago. I forgot. He was, remember, he was like a Detroit cop back in the uh, day before he started singing, too. Wow. So uh, there you go. A little Any Money tribute here this afternoon. You can always check out the bumper music. I put a list together. Abby actually does, and she puts it in her very nice handwriting because you would not be able to read it if it was me, and we put it up on the uh, X, formerly Twitter, every day. A lot of stuff coming up. I, I mentioned this piece that was in the New York Times on Thursday or Friday about detransitioning. And again, here's another one 
one of these pieces in a mainstream publication which pushes back on some of this gender nonsense. So we'll get to that in just a minute. We'll have uh, Sue's News with Sue, not Fred, the Hall of Famer who was filling in uh, for Sue not too mm. long ago. But he's back with us. The whole show is together, I guess, is my point this afternoon. So as I was doing some prep last week, I don't really try to do too much, let's be honest. But every once in a while I read things and I well, sure. I go through material and I found something on Real Clear Politics that um, was interesting to me. And it was about the dissatisfaction of young voters and I have a couple of those young voters that don't live in my household anymore. They're out there after being indoctrinated throughout the course of their lifetime. And one is now an indoctrinator. He's a teacher at Hickman High School in Columbia. But Adeline Von Draley wrote about this in Real Clear Politics, the dissatisfaction of young voters. And that may have interested me in and of itself. But then I found out that Adeline is at Mizzou. She went to Mizzou. Actually, maybe she's still there. Are you still in Columbia? I know you're heading off to Oxford. How are you this afternoon, Adeline? Hi there. I'm good. Thanks for uh, having me on. I've actually just graduated from Missouri, and I, I hate to admit it, my byline is out of date. So I've spent the year, uh, the past year at Oxford, I graduated from Missouri, and I am heading out uh, to D.C. full time. Ah, yeah, because at the end of it, it says she will spend the coming year as an Oxford fellow. That is fake news. I'm glad you cleared it up for us this <laughs> afternoon. Yes. Now, what's, what's the uh, what's the communication? I'm sorry, not the communication. What's the connection with Real Clear? Because we're big fans. I'm a huge fan of Real Clear and those guys over there. So, how'd you get that uh, that article published there? So, I've actually just been hired on with Real Clear. I interned for them in 2022. That's what that uh, byline is from. And um, with the election cycle coming up, they're looking for a few more bodies a few more workers and they reached back out to me and i happily accepted so i'm i'm back with real clear now well that's great and congratulations and you know we have i have a couple of younger people who work here with the show abby who helped get you on the line but i will be honest as someone who is a an older voter sometimes the younger voters confuse me and that was one of the things i think your piece tried to clear up here maybe trying to put this into perspective for people who are a little older to say hey what's up with uh, gen z and i didn't know this i think i learned one thing they're nicknamed the zoomer generation sue and i didn't know that that's how old we are no we didn't know we had no idea um yeah i think it's a play on boomer it sounds that way that we did actually connect the dots we got that that one we didn't know that that's that was the nickname all right so let's address a couple of the things that you uh talked about here 21 percent of gen z adults are registered Republican voters. That's not really a surprise. I don't know what the number is um, on the other side, but one of the things that always comes up every presidential year is these younger voters don't seem to vote. So did you discover that that's likely to happen in 24 as well? So the that's, that's a lot of people are interested, like you said, in what exactly is going on with young voters. The enthusiasm among Gen Z voters seems even lower than in previous years. I mean, it's definitely not surprising or new that young voters tend to be the lowest, have the lowest voter turnout of any group. So I saw a stat today that said, you know, voters 65 and up while they make up, you know, 21 percent of the electorate actually account for something like 28 percent of of the voting power. Um, And I think for Gen Z or the youngest generation of voters, that number would actually be less than their, their, the, de- the demographic power they should hold. And why why do you think that is? That's something I've never really been um, 
able to figure out and really dial in on from this perspective. Look, when I turned 18 years old and Ronald Reagan was the first president that I got to vote for, I couldn't wait to vote. And I participated in every presidential election and really hopefully every election that I could since I really do think that some of these smaller municipal elections are just as important because they affect your life. So I couldn't wait. My, my kids not as motivated by that. What is it that keeps people from just going to the polls? Is there anything you can kind of dial down on there, Adeline? It's a good question. I think as far as local elections, I don't have a super good answer. It might be the fact that these people aren't necessarily uh, in economically independent yet. They feel like a lot of the policies don't truly affect them. And then on the national level, you feel a lot of kind of dissatisfaction with politics in general. They feel as if their vote doesn't matter. Their voices aren't heard. A lot of them aren't fans of the Electoral College and think, since it's not a popular vote anyway, why would I right. Why would I vote? I'm not going to make a difference. One, one thing, Sue, that she said in the piece, I thought this was interesting, and as someone who's not in this generation, maybe a, a good reminder. You said, you know, you have a, a generation that is known for immediate gratification, short attention spans, political division, cultural, economic instability. But what she wrote in this piece in Real Clear is that you had this group of young people raised during the 2008 financial crash. You know, crash. They came of age during the pandemic, which I can't believe it was four years ago when we were oh, all man. set for that craziness. They had a social media account by junior high school. They had unlimited access to footage of natural disasters, police brutality. This is the generation of school shooter drills. I think a lot of us who are adults forget about that. And school assemblies on cyberbullying and suicide. And Adeline, your point in all of that was to say, maybe understanding some of those factors is crucial to understanding where these voters are coming from, right? Yeah, just that they were completely inundated from most of them from 11, 10, 11, 12 years old, or at least the, the group that's voting now, with kind of social media and all of this horrible global news at their fingertips all the time. Yeah. And I just think that affects that affected them in ways we and even I don't understand. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. I don't know how that works itself out and how culturally we sort of move forward. I mean, the, the old adage would be in the conventional wisdom, and Sue, tell me if, if this is wrong. We always used to joke, I can't remember the exact saying, but, you know, you're liberal when you're young. You get to 30 and you're older, you're paying taxes. You start looking at things in a different yeah, direction, do. right? But as you point out, and this is something that maybe selfishly I can't relate with, but this is a generation, and you even quote people, Adeline, in your piece, as saying that it's less about them and it's about others. They're, they're trying to uh, do things that are for people who are more vulnerable than themselves, right? Yeah, and I that I'm not entirely sure about yet. I think some of that is just being young. They feel they don't they aren't respected. They don't have a voice. They're kind of looking out for the little guy because they feel like the little guy. And then there was, you know, one person who I interviewed who maybe brought up, I don't know, does does sympathy track well algorithmically? Is that just what gets views online and that's what you these oh, that's a people good Right. Young young voters are always seeing. You didn't write about this in the piece, but did you address the issue? I'm very curious about this. Where the Zoomers, the younger people, get their news from and how much they Ooh, pay attention to question. the news? Yeah, I actually do. I think it's a, it's a small paragraph, but they say about people under the age of 25 are two times more likely to use social media apps like TikTok, Instagram, 
X, which is, you know, Twitter, as their news source than they are to look at traditional news sources like, you know, CNN or Fox. Right. And that that does not surprise me. I think the number might even be higher than that. I don't wow. know. But that that's a great concern. Although I say that, and I don't know, you know, I'm someone who doesn't necessarily believe in the veracity of the reporting and the legacy media. But as someone who, uh, by the way, Adeline was trained there at the University of Missouri in the journalism school, I have great, you know, sadness for the fact that we can't really trust any of these media institutions. And young people are going to hear something on TikTok or Saturday Night Live or somewhere else, think it's true. Maybe not do any further investigation of that beyond that, which I, I think is problematic for the future. I think absolutely. I I think people are generally becoming more wary of traditional news sources, but then are, you know, seeing something online and yeah, they're not fact checking it. They're not doing their own additional research and they're forgetting about it very quickly. They're becoming inflamed about it very yeah. quickly well, and then forgetting about and it. And I think a good example of that is what's happened with the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. I know you oh, addressed yeah. that a little bit in the piece, but that's been a head-scratcher for, for those of us who are a little older, saying, wait a second, where, where's, you know, we've always known college campuses are a bit radical, but the amount of um, what I would call anti-Semitism on campuses has really been jarring, I think, to a lot of people. It absolutely, I mean, it is all over the news, isn't it? You know, people are fascinated with what Gen Z is thinking. And, you know, they would, of course, say that they are not they are pro-Palestinian civilian. Um, but you're right. There have been kind of some some scary polls or surveys which show rising anti-Semitism as well. So hand in hand, it is a confusing phenomenon. Do you think that the Gen Z folks and the people that you are hanging with or have, you know, interviewed, do they want the government to do more for them personally? Yes, I think so. I think if I had to describe it in a nutshell, these people are basically saying, you know, I'm confused why Joe Biden has the power to send money to Israel immediately, but why why can't he just as quickly or just as easily enact climate legislation. That's what that's maybe part of the discontent. And they they don't understand why he isn't doing more that they want him to do. You know, it's interesting because there, there would be and a they di- don't there'd vote be a, and then well, wonder why. But see, I right. think there's there's commonality. Look, you, you could probably look at a lot of Republican voters right now and they don't understand how you could send money to Israel and to Ukraine and not, you know, focus on issues in at our home. own country. Yeah. They're certainly not going to measure, you know, mention climate change. But I think maybe there's some common ground right. there or common right. bonds between voters of different stripes because, you know, I was thinking about this in driving in today because I knew we were going to talk about some of these topics. And I don't know how you improve on this because of what I've said about the media and what we know about the media. But maybe we can all agree, and Adeline, I, I include you in this, that these politicians don't do a really good job of explaining all this to us. Now, you can say that that's part of the role of journalism and reporters, but I just don't think that politicians make an effort to put these things into better context for the American people. True. Yeah, I think they would it would go a long way for, you know, Biden to get up there and say, hey, guys, I really tried to do this. But because of A, B and C about the way government and bureaucracy works, I wasn't able to. I don't really know why um, him and more people in in elected 
positions of power don't do that, but I think it would serve them well yeah. to just be honest. Well, I think that in the president's case, maybe the reason is because he can't really spit the words out, but that would be my <laughs> take, Adeline. Hey, congratulations on the gig with Real Clear. We appreciate you coming on here. M-I-Z. Z-O-U. All right, thank you, Adeline. Watch the Grammys last night. I did not. Yeah, I, I watched the um, the opening with Dua Lipa. That was the only thing that I watched, and then I read about it today. We're going to include some information in Sue's News. You know there was a little controversy because Jay-Z got up there and started complaining that Beyonce, the Queen Bee, should have been awarded. Well, she wasn't even nominated for I Best Album. I was going to say, what? what? Why well, do people he, do he that? Well, he doesn't like the fact that she has, I mean, well, I don't even know if this is true, but she has the most Grammys and never has won for Album of the Year, which maybe that's true, but maybe she never had an Album of the Year also. Uh, she had yeah, songs is, that were worthy, right? Is that possible? I mean, hello. But what was awesome is, and, and here's where maybe there's some common ground with Jay-Z and the rest of us where he, he basically threw, I'll play you the speech. Did you hear the speech? I did not. We'll, we'll have that for you. But he basically says at the end, uh, some of you should not even be in this category. Now, he doesn't name them. Taylor Swift won, of course, but Olivia Rodrigo and SZA. Isn't SZA from St. Louis? I don't know. I Let me check so. that out. I think I found that out. All right. So there is a story written by somebody by the name of Pamela Paul that was in the New York Times the other day. And I was quite um, quite struck by it because this was Friday. I think I was questioning earlier whether it was Thursday or Friday. And here was the headline in the New York Times, legacy newspaper, right? As kids, they thought they were trans. They no longer do. Now, anytime you have something like this, oh, there's all kinds of people that complain and you're accused of being like Dave Chappelle and, you know, um, what's her name? J.K. Rowling. I can't believe I forgot her name, but it was a brain cramp there because you're just not being empathetic to the needs of the trans community. And let's face it, the go-to line at this point is, if, if you don't care about the trans kids, they're all going to kill themselves. They're all going to die. Mass suicide. That's basically what we hear. And it's a bunch of nonsense. And by the way, this piece might be one of the best pieces I've ever read to counter some of the crap out there that gets spread by the trans activists. So she starts by telling the story of Grace Powell. And she says Grace Powell was 12 or 13 when she did discovered she could be a boy. Growing up in a relatively conservative community in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Powell, like many teenagers, didn't feel comfortable in her own skin. She was unpopular and frequently bullied. Puberty made everything worse. She suffered from depression and was in and out of therapy. The quote that uh, they included in the story was, I felt so detached from my body and the way it was developing felt hostile to me. And um, she says here it was classic gender dysphoria, a feeling of discomfort with your sex. Reading about transgender people online, Powell believed that the reason she didn't feel comfortable in her body was that she was in the wrong body. So to her, transitioning seemed like the obvious solution. The narrative she had heard and absorbed, that's a key word I think here, narrative, was that if you don't transition, you'll kill yourself, right? And that, that's, that's why I bring it up because you hear that every time this gets debated. So the author here, Pamela Paul, says at 17, desperate to begin hormone therapy, Paul broke the news to her parents. They sent her to a gender specialist to make sure she was serious. In the fall of her senior year of high school, she started cross-sex hormones. She had a double mastectomy the summer before college and then went off as a transgender man named Grayson to Sarah Lawrence College, where she was paired with a male roommate on a men's floor at five foot three, she felt that she came across as a very effeminate gay man. At no point, by the way, wait for it. Okay, just wait for it here. You're going to see where this is going. At no point during her medical or surgical transition, Paul says, did 
anyone ask her about the reasons behind her gender dysphoria or her depression. By the way, that completely matches up with the medical malpractice that was occurring here at Wash U in the gender clinic that Jamie Reed outed a year ago. All of this kind of plays right into the same, um, you know, narrative, if you will. At no point was she asked about her sexual orientation. At no point was she asked about any previous trauma. And so neither of the therapists nor the doctors ever learned that she had been sexually abused as a child. Paula is 23 and detransitioned, told Paula, I wish there had been more open conversations. But I was told... There is one cure and one thing to do if this is your problem, and this will help you. It's ridiculous. It is unbelievable. And thank God, by the way, that this was outed in the New York Times. And I'm sure that they had some sort of outrageous reaction. But they feature a little bit of a discussion about Laura Edwards Leeper. And I've talked about Ms. Leeper before. She was the founding psychologist of the first pediatric gender clinic in the U.S., And this all started back in 2007. And she'll tell you to this day because she has deep regrets about some of the stuff that she's pushed or how this has gotten out of control. So back then, you had patients who were chosen for transitioning that had deep-seated gender dysphoria. I've always said that I think some of this is probably true. Do some people truly have gender dysphoria? Yeah, I think there is a, a percentage of people, a very small percentage of people who have that. But for the most part, there were mental health issues that were at play. So what Laura Edwards Leeper told Paula for this article is that that's not what's happening anymore. And she says she doesn't regret transitioning the earlier patient patients, rather, And she does oppose government bans on trans medical care. Um, As far as I can tell, there are no professional organizations, she's quoted as saying, who are stepping in to regulate what's going on, which, by the way, is exactly why lawmakers in Missouri, in Florida and elsewhere have to do it, because the doctors won't do it on their own and they think they're doing the right thing here. The article says most of her patients now, she said, have no history of childhood gender dysphoria. They say that. This is referred to as rapid onset gender dysphoria, in which adolescents, particularly tween and teenage girls, express gender dysphoria despite never having done so when they were younger. Frequently, they have mental health issues unrelated to gender. Now, Paula's piece says, while professional associations say there's a lack of quality research on rapid onset gender dysphoria, Several researchers have documented the phenomenon, and many healthcare providers have seen evidence of that in their practices. I don't believe that for one minute, right? What, what's happening is mental illness. So there's no evidence of sudden onset gender dysphoria unless you're watching TikTok and you're depressed and you're anxious and you have all these other mental issues and you think you should cut off your boobs because that's exactly what happened with this young girl that they featured. And now she has deep regrets over it. She did this when she was 16, 17, 18 years old. She's 23. She wants to go back, and that's what she's doing right now. They talk about Tavascock here, which is in, um, you know, Britain. That's the gender clinic over there that's been controversial. It was ordered to be shut down. It was the only health center dedicated to gender identity, and the people there, and this kind of goes in with Wash U and, and Children's Hospital and all that, because... When they were doing the investigation there, there were people that noted that primary and secondary care staff have told us that they feel under pressure 
to adopt an unquestioning affirmative approach and that this is not, or I'm sorry, this is at odds with the standard process of clinical assessment. So in other words, everybody comes in for other diagnoses, no matter what they have going with them, you know, on with them. And the doctors always look at other causes, right? They, they see what may be the underlying factors. Unless you are a girl and you want to be a boy or vice versa, then they just hop you up. It's ridiculous. Good piece, though, in the New York Times from Friday. Get more at 971talk.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.